This podcast is presented to you by Pastor Derek Armstrong and Word of Grace Community Church. For more information, please visit WOGCC.com. We're kicking off a brand new series today. We're going to go verse by verse through the book of James. It's actually one of my favorite books in all of the Bible, simply because it really marries the idea that faith without works is dead and where those things actually come from. A lot of people misuse the book of James. A lot of people misunderstand the book of James. As a matter of fact, the great reformer Martin Luther wanted the book of James taken out of the canon. He wanted the book taken out because there was a direct conflict in his mind with Romans chapter 4 and uh, James chapter 2. And so he thought this doesn't need to be in there and he wanted the whole thing taken out because it just didn't make sense. But I believe that it's actually this idea of works and being saved by grace. I think they actually work very well together if we look at Scripture in context. My goodness, we need to always look at Scripture in context, do we not? Amen. Amen. Please, please always look at Scripture in context. It's vitally important to your growth. It's important to proper interpretation of Scripture because people can get goofy doctrines and they can say goofy things when they look at Scripture out of context. So let's make sure that we look at the Word of God in proper context. So let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask Him to help us do just that very thing today. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You that it's forever settled, it's forever true. As we expound upon the book of James, God, I pray that You will help us all to be hearers and doers of the Word. I pray that as we speak your precious words of life that are in this book that you have given us to reveal your heart to man, I pray that you will help me to speak it clearly with authority, contextually, and I pray we will all grow as men and women of God, devoted followers and disciples of Jesus, to be more and more like him, to be able to show and reflect your glory at work in our hearts and in this earth so people might be wooed and drawn to you and not to us. We thank you for doing the heart work and the transformation in each one of us, God, as we're on this journey. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, why don't you go ahead and go to the book of James. Let's look at the first chapter, James chapter 1. And while you're turning there, I want to just make a couple of mentions of uh, some things that you may or may not be aware of. We do have the uh, YouVersion Bible app that you can download and you can follow along on the notes. That's with every sermon. You can just go to the events section and you can download the notes. It's actually a copy of my notes. So if you want to see what does Pastor Derek look at, you can see that and they may help you in your own personal growth and study. So utilize that. Also, there's Bibles in the back of the sanctuary. For some reason, you forget got your Bible, or perhaps you don't own a Bible, if you don't, then you can take one of those Bibles, and nobody's going to tackle you on the way out of church, I promise. You can have that Bible, it's yours, if you don't have one. Now, don't just get one just for fun, but get one if you genuinely don't have one. They're the same translation of the Bible that I'm preaching out of, which is the English Standard. I like the English Standard because it is a word-for-word translation. There are thought-for-thought translations, and then there are word-for-word translations. Neither of them, I think, are are, are wrong or bad to own. I just prefer preaching and teaching out of a word-for-word translation. That means that the translators literally took each word and translated word-for-word instead of just idea-for-idea or thought-for-thought. So that's what the English Standard is, as well as the uh, King James, New King James, New New American Standard, all of those 
are uh, word-for-word translations. So um, just to give you a heads up on why I decided to use that, it's uh, very easy to understand also. So as we go into the book of James, we're going to talk throughout this entire series and weave together throughout this entire series this idea of James being an overflow of grace. Because as I look at Christian disciplines, as I look at Christian godly, moral, healthy living that honors God, I truly see those things as an overflow of grace. There's a real strong message towards grace in the Christian church, especially in America right now. And I think that some of it's properly contextualized and a great deal of it is abused because people misunderstand and misuse and abuse grace. They think that there's no morality. They think there's no consequence. They think there's no reason for us to want to live morally or to do the things the Bible tells us to do because we're all just under grace. And that's a great misunderstanding that a lot of people have. I believe that grace should be something that causes our hearts to want to serve, to want to do the things God's called us to do, to want to live according to his standards because it's his grace at work in our heart. And anything that we do that's good is an overflow of his grace impacting our lives. In other words, that's reiterated in Galatians where we hear about the fruit of the Spirit. It's the result of the Spirit of God living on the inside of me. It's an overflow of the grace of God or the Spirit of God at work in my heart. And that should be causing change and producing visible change that others can see. Amen? Amen. Too many people are Christian by name tag only or because they think they went to church, they said a prayer, or because they went through a certain class, or because they got baptized, and they think, well, I'm good. That's all I needed to do, and then I'm pretty much finished with this whole Christian thing, and I just hope to make heaven when I die and do more good than I do bad. That's not Christianity at all. That's not a proper understanding of grace. That's not a proper response to grace. As a matter of fact, that's actually the opposite of what we want to see in the life of a believer. There should be noticeable change in the life of a Christian from the influence and impact of God's grace actively working in their hearts. Amen? There should be change. You should be changing. I should be changing. Hopefully you're not the same person you were last month, last year, two years ago, three years ago, ten years ago. If you are, then you're just going through the motions and you need to wake up and you need to begin to press into God and truly grow in grace so He can change you and grow in that grace that He's given you. Amen? It's not something we're just supposed to sit on and something we're just supposed to be idle with, something that we're actually supposed to be growing in, and it's an overflowing expression of our response to His grace at work in our heart. So if you're a note-taker, write this down. The road to maturity. That's what we're going to talk about this morning in this very first book of James. I went back and looked, and the very first time I ever taught verse by verse through the Scripture was the book of Romans. How many of you guys were here for the book of Romans about two years ago? A little over two years ago, actually. You remember those 17 weeks that pastor got ambitious on. Yeah, that was a fun time. We enjoyed that. And we went through that. And it was a great series. It was really beneficial for me personally, just growing as a speaker, as a presenter, as well as a Christian, just growing through doing that type of intense study verse by verse. You know that since that very first one that we did back in 2014, that this will be our eighth book of the Bible to have gone through verse by verse since uh, Romans. Isn't that cool? 
I think that's pretty cool. So if you missed any of the other ones, or perhaps you're newer here, go back and check those out, because I believe these are great uh, teachings and stuff for us to grow in. So I want to give you the history, the framework, the context to the book of James, so you can know what's going on, and you can properly frame this book of James. James was the son of Mary and Joseph. He was the half-brother of Jesus, okay? This guy who wrote this book of James. He was also the leader or the pastor or bishop, we're not sure, but he was the the leader or the pastor of the church in Jerusalem, the main church, the one that you may read about throughout the book of Acts, James was in charge of that church. James was known by the church in that day as Camel Knees. That was his nickname. And the reason he was known as Camel Knees is because his knees were so worn from spending hours upon hours of prayer. If you're going to be called Camel Knees, wouldn't you want that nickname as a result of your prayer life? I thought that was pretty special when I found that. He also wrote this letter that we know as the book of James to Jewish Christians who were outside of Palestine and were scattered because of persecution. So because, the, because Christianity was not accepted and you could be put to death because of Christianity in that region, in that time, the response of the churches where they scattered, you know, they couldn't stay uh, publicly meeting or they would all be killed or arrested or beaten. So they scattered, and now because the church is is scattered and it's reaching other places, (coughs) excuse me, James wanted to address some things that had been happening amongst the churches. And he was a person that when you would hear from James, you would want to listen, because this guy was in charge of the church in Jerusalem. So this letter was copied and scattered amongst the churches in an effort to combat the hypocritical idea that intellect and knowledge make a person spiritual and teach true godly living instead that should be the fruit of faith. So that was James' intention. There was a lot of hypocritical teaching and hypocritical ideas that were circulating amongst the churches, even though they were scattered abroad, that I just need to know it. As long as I know it, that's good. And I need to accumulate for myself a bunch of knowledge. I need to amass for myself a bunch of knowledge. Because the smarter I am, the more intellectual I am, then apparently the more spiritual that I am. And that's what people thought. Isn't it funny that the same stuff that we find churches dealing with that was addressed throughout these letters to the church, churches, these epistles to the churches, are the same things we deal with today? Isn't it funny that we just see this stuff just circulating and just happening? It just shows you people are people. It doesn't matter if they're Jewish people. It doesn't matter if they're Americans. That we still have this idea that if I know it, then that's good enough, and that equates to me being spiritual. So I'm just going to know a bunch of things. But he was trying to convince them and tell them, no, instead there should be fruit of your knowledge. There should be fruit of your life being impacted by Christ, and that should be godly living. This book of James is written in a Jewish style of writing that's known as pearls of wisdom on a string. And what that means is that the ideas may jump from idea to idea, just like the book of Proverbs. If you've ever read that, that was also written in the Jewish tradition of pearls of wisdom on a string. So if you could imagine a necklace that is a string of pearls, one goes to the next, and it really doesn't have any rhyme or reason sometimes in Scripture why it may jump from one idea to the next. But that's that style of writing, and that's what the book of James was written in, was that style of writing. So it's not just James, you know, just being schizophrenic or James just, you know, uh, getting distracted and he had ADHD, you know, and he's going, oh, look, squirrel, you know. 
That's not what was happening. This was actually an accepted form of writing in that day. And so this was something that they were accustomed to. This style is the same wisdom literature at that day that it was written. So with that being said, let's go to the book of James, chapter 1 and verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Now here, James is specifically talking to the persecution of these scattered Christians. He is saying their faith is literally being tested. He's saying, listen, you guys are being tested, all right? He said, but you should count it all joy when your faith is being tested, when you're going through these persecutions, when you're going through these trials, when you're going through these difficulties that have actually scattered you. You should go, oh, I should count this all joy. That doesn't sound very joyful to me. I don't know what you consider joy. But that doesn't sound very joyful. But yet James says, count it all joy because of what it's going to produce. He said it's going to produce steadfastness. He said, so count it all joy. The road to maturity is often tension-filled. And we need to just accept this fact that the road to growth, the road to maturity is tension-filled. There's going to be all sorts of things that come your way that are going to test your trust in God. Whether or not you want to do things your way and you want to trust in yourself and your own wisdom, you want to trust in your own pocketbook, you want to trust in your own knowledge, you want to trust in your own connections, or whether you're going to truly trust in God. Because as you grow and as you mature, the things that truly develop, a lot of the, the, the things that we become very solid in in our life is when we find something that we have known and then we actually put it into practice and we see that it worked. Then you can come against us. Then you can try to take that away from us and nobody can because you're like, no, I know this is true because not only have I heard it, not only do I know it, but I've lived it. Amen, somebody? I love hanging out with people older than me and I love just listening to them and talking to them and asking them questions because they know a lot more things than I know because they've lived it. Right? They've lived it, and they'll share things. Even from, I'll ask their perspective on certain things just because I want to gain insight because I haven't been there yet. I just, I have all the knowledge in my head, and, and I can speak on a level that might impress them and might make them think, oh, he knows what he's talking about. But yet, I haven't lived some of those things. I don't know how it is to have adult children and grandchildren. I could talk about it. I could read a book on it. And I could probably sound really smart, but I don't have adult children or grandchildren. So I have no idea. So I need to sit and listen to wisdom, amen? And then even until I experience it, I still won't fully comprehend what that really means. And I know that. 
And I think there's some things in life that we don't fully comprehend until we walk through those things. So the road to maturity, the path to growth, is full of tension because there's change. There's discomfort. There's this thing of, oh, I don't really know what to do, and I'm not really sure if I'm making the right decision, but here goes. There's a lot of those times they are just tension-filled where we have to truly seek from God, and God doesn't leave us hanging. He doesn't say, well, hope you figure it out. No, James said, if any man lacks wisdom during that time, you need to ask because he gives it freely, and then don't doubt that he's going to give it. Because he's going to give you the wisdom that you need to navigate those tension-filled circumstances. He's going to give you the wisdom you need to navigate those trials. All you need to do is trust in him and have that relationship invested in with him so that you can hear him speak, so you can see in his word, so you can be led by his spirit. Because he said, I'm full of wisdom, I'm the source of wisdom and I'll give it to you. You just got to ask. But how many times do those tension-filled circumstances cause us to run in the opposite direction? They cause us to run to the things that are comfortable. They cause us to not want to deal with adversity. They cause us to not want to deal with the tension. I love tension-filled text in the Scripture because the way that I grew up, we explained all the tension-filled Scriptures away with our own ideas and our own doctrine. I love them because it causes me to think and it challenges me to grow. It makes me dig deeper when I see tension in Scripture. When I see things that I am challenged in in my personal belief system or the way that I've always grew up thinking, I love those moments because I know this is a time for growth. I love those moments in life. Not every time. But I love those moments in life where challenges come my way and I get perspective. Oftentimes my initial reaction is one where I'll get real emotional because that's one of my triggers is when tension comes. I'll either get down or I'll get angry or I'll get frustrated, which produces me to be angry and short. And, 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 and then if I will continue in that and I'll press into God through that and ask Him for wisdom, it never fails that I'll always get perspective to count it all joy. And the perspective is this is going to cause great growth in my life. I don't like this. I don't like this circumstance. I don't like this situation. I don't know what to do right now. But at the same time, I know this tension is healthy because I know this tension is going to cause me to press into God the source of wisdom and to listen to Him and find direction because He said I need to trust Him and He will lead me and guide me into all truth and He'll let me know what I need to do. That's what James is saying here. He's saying, listen, you guys that are being tested, you guys that are being persecuted, I know you're tempted to fall away from the faith. I know you're tempted to go, oh, well, you know, I don't know if this Jesus is really worth it. I mean, is it even real anyways? I don't know. I mean, they're talking about killing my kids. They're talking about, you know, killing my wife. They're talking about taking my livelihood away from me, and and I'm losing my job and my, my source of provision for my family. And they come against me with all these things. I don't really know if it's worth it. He said, no, 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 it's worth it. He said, because actually, if you ask God for wisdom in this situation, it's going to produce something in you and solidify something that you may have up here, but you don't quite have here yet. You hearing what I'm saying this morning? So I find joy sometimes in tension. Not always, because you've got to get over that hump. That's the hard thing about tension-filled circumstances. I love going to the gym. There's a lot of tension in the gym. It's self-selected tension. It's like you know that you are doing this on purpose. 
And if I think that just some simple magic pill or some simple magic uh, piece of equipment will do all of the work for me, then I'm going to be sorely disappointed. It takes hard work. I remember someone asked me, um, Derek, how did you lose weight? What did you do? What's the secret? I said, hard work, dedication, dedication and hard work. (laughs) Oh, I don't like that. (laughs) I know you don't like it. You don't want to know why? Because it's tension-filled. It's full of tension. It's not easy. It's something that makes you, you know, want to go, is this really worth it? Especially after those first few weeks of really pressing in, really committing. Doesn't matter what it is. Doesn't matter if it's a diet, if it's exercise, doesn't matter if it's some financial discipline, doesn't matter if it's spending time with your spouse and your children, it doesn't matter if it's committing to something at church, it doesn't matter if it's committing to certain spiritual disciplines. Everybody's gold for like the first week, maybe. And then the second week, when you really start to feel the pressure and the tension of the inconvenience or the selfishness begins to bubble up in you, the road to maturity is going to be one where you gain perspective and say, I'm going to find joy in this tension because this is the pathway to growth. This is the pathway to maturity, is actually pressing in through this and not throwing my hands up in the, in the air and giving up. Trusting during adversity is the key to receiving wisdom. So if you don't know what to do in the adversity you're in, if you don't know what to do in the pressure that you're in, God said, ask ask. Don't just try to run away from the tension. Instead, embrace the tension. Try to find the joy in it. The joy is this will cause me to press into God, which is going to cause nothing but good things in my life. Even though the situation may be tough, even though it may not be ideal, it's still something that's going to cause growth in you. So that's where the joy comes from, is knowing that this is going to cause growth. This is going to help me on the pathway and the road to maturity. Maturity isn't something that just happens but rather it's a continual development through both education and experience. We cannot deny, we cannot avoid those negative experiences because they make us stronger. Amen, somebody? Let's keep on reading in the, in the book of James. Let's pick it up there at the ninth, chap, ninth verse. James 1 and 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, yes it does, and withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. As I look at this passage of Scripture, we see the contrast between a rich man and a poor man, and that's often used in Scripture. And one, the rich man trusted in his ability to gain wealth, and the lowly man, the lowly brother, was actually exalted by God. And really, as I look at the principle to lift out of this certain text, is really driving home the message of trust. Because remember, James just got through talking about trusting God through temptation, through trials, through adversity. And he talked about pressing into God as the source of wisdom. And then he immediately comes to give this illustration of trust. What are you truly trusting in? Because the road to maturity is not only tension-filled, but the road to maturity trusts. The rich man trusted in his ability to gain wealth, and the lowly brother was exalted by God. It's the same scriptural principle that's in 1 Peter 5 and 6, where Peter writes, To humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and in due season he will exalt you. Humbling is a great, great, great deal, has a great, great deal uh, to do with trust. Amen? 
Because if I'm going to be humbled by the Lord, then I need to say, God, I'm not going to try to make something happen on my own. I'm going to trust in you to do what you said you were going to do instead of me trying to control the situation and say, I know better than God. Humility is admitting that God knows better than me. Hello, somebody. Humility is saying, God, your way, not my way. Your will, not my will. And that takes a deep level of trust. And Peter says to do this under the mighty hand of God. And when it's time for that next level, when it's time for that new experience, when it's time for that exaltation, he said, God's going to do it, not you. When it's time for you to be recognized, when it's time for someone to notice what's happening, God says, I'll do that, not you. Too many times we want to take self-promotion in our own hands. Look at the internet. (laughs) It's the source of self-promotion, is it not? The internet is, is, is the biggest source of self-promotion since social media, since YouTube. Everybody's trying to get noticed. People are wondering, what's the craziest, zaniest thing I can do so someone will notice me, so someone will pay attention to me. And God says, why don't you just keep being faithful, humbling yourself, doing the things that I've commanded and told you to do, and when it's time, then I'm going to put you in a position where you're noticed, and it's going to be for my glory, not yours. Amen, somebody? But that takes a deep level of trust. That's an easy thing to say. That's an easy thing to amen. But that's a harder thing to live, right? Because we get impatient and we say, God, I'm ready for this situation to change. I don't like this adversity. God, I'm ready to be mature now. Or we will be self-deceived thinking that we're mature when we're really not. I'm reading a book. It's called The Emotionally Healthy Leader by Peter Scazzaro. I would recommend you pick it up if you're interested in leadership at all. The Emotionally Healthy Leader by Peter Scazzaro. And one of the things that he says in this book that has really just stuck with me is that you cannot be spiritually mature and emotionally immature. He said you can't be spiritually mature and emotionally immature. And some of the most self-proclaimed spiritually mature people I've ever met in my life are some of the most emotionally immature people that I've ever met in my life. People who think that they're right next to God. People who think that they know it all. People who think that they're so wise and so smart, but there's really no fruit in their life, and there's a lot of dysfunction in their lives. I've seen that my entire life. You cannot be spiritually mature and emotionally immature because those things go hand in hand. And that takes us humbling and trusting and saying, God, not my way, but your way. You work in me through this adversity what you want to work. Because he didn't say that you would never walk through the valley of the shadow of death, did he? He didn't say that. He said, when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you don't have to be afraid. Why? Because he's with us. Amen? He walks with us. So it's not, am I going to go through challenges? It's not, is there going to be a mountain in my way? But no, I know the mountain mover. I know the one who walks with me through those challenges. I know the one who's for me and not against me. And I just have to trust and rest and humble myself and say, God, your way. Amen? Let's keep on reading in James 1. Let's pick it up at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. 
Then desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Or if uh, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creation. Here we see this idea of trusting God reiterated that it will help us to endure temptation and overcome it. God doesn't bring the temptation, but rather James illustrates quite clearly that the temptations that come in our life are a result of our selfishness, our selfish fleshly desires. And apparently James writes that we will deal with this in this life until we receive this crown of glory. Or when we're in heaven, because that's what verse 12 says. Look at that. Verse 12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. So when we withstand that test and we go through this life and we finally see him face to face, when there's no more tears, when there's no more sorrow, when there's no more sin, when we are completely just immersed face to face with him, He said, then you're not going to have to worry about that. You'll receive that crown of life. He said, but until then, you need to keep on enduring. Until then, there's still going to be temptations. There's still going to be things that want to try to knock you out. It doesn't matter if you're 9 years old or 99 years old. There's still going to be temptations and opportunities for you to give in to that selfish, fleshly desires that we often wrestle with. So we need to understand that trusting in God through those temptations, enduring and uh, pursuing Him and persevering through those temptations is going to help us to continue to be an overcomer. Now, we've seen that the road to maturity is tension-filled. We've seen the road to maturity, trust God. But I think that this last piece of the first chapter of the book of James really bookends this idea of growing by saying the road to maturity is truly selfless. It's selfless, not something that's driven by selfishness because James just illustrated what selfishness produces. It produces crumbling into temptation, giving in to temptation. That's what selfishness does. And he said we need to continue to endure and grow and make sure that we're maturing and overcoming these things because we know the overcomer. We have the victory. Amen? And even though we will be tempted, we don't have to fall, but we're still going to be dealing with it. But then he says, listen, the road to maturity is truly not about you. It's not about giving in to selfishness. It's truly selfless. Let's read the rest of this chapter here, James uh, 1 and 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away, and he forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, 
to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. So as we see James beginning to move into this idea of selflessness, he's talking about controlling our tongue. He's talking about the way we process and deal with anger. He's talking about these very temptations that he was just dealing with us, enduring and overcoming. And this portion of Scripture deals a lot with self-deception. And I think that we as believers can often fall into this temptation to be self-deceived. Self-deception is really convincing ourselves that we're right when we're truly wrong. It's just justifying certain behaviors, attitudes, or actions because we feel like we have a strong enough ground to stand on to justify. So we think, oh, it's, it's okay, everybody does it, or it's okay, at least I'm doing better than my neighbor, or at least I'm doing better than so-and-so, and we begin to live this comparative life, and we begin to deceive ourselves. And we begin to think that something is right when it's actually not. Or we begin to think that we're right when we're actually wrong. James deals specifically with listening to others. He talks about making sure we're listening, that we're slow to speak and we're quick to listen. That we need to make sure that we're actually hearing what other people are saying. And that we're not just always uh, giving our opinion or our thought or over-talking people all of the time. Because if we do, that reveals a selfish heart. And it shows that we're more interested in us than we are what the other person has to say. If you're engaged in a conversation with someone and you're thinking about what you're going to say next instead of hearing what they're going to say and what they're trying to tell you, that is driven by the root of selfishness. It is, just plain and simple. It doesn't matter on what level it is. It doesn't matter how uh, spiritual the conversation is, how heavy the conversation is, or how light the conversation is. It could even be a conversation talking about the weather. It could be a conversation talking about the brewers. Or it could be a conversation talking about the great year that the pack are going to have. And, 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 and you're thinking about what you're going to say next. That's selfishness. You're not slowing down and being present in the moment. You need to learn to be present. I need to learn to be present. I shared this and was very vulnerable with a friend of mine this past week, and I said, one of my biggest struggles is being in the moment. I said, my, my brain is just always somewhere else than where my body is, and I feel like at a certain level I'm watching my life happen because sometimes my brain can be so active and so busy that people are trying to speak and they're trying to say things to me, and, and I'm not even present in the conversation because I'm thinking about what I've got to do or where I've got to be. That's so selfish. That's so selfish of me. It just reveals the fact that, man, there's selfishness at work in my heart, but if I'm going to be mature, I need to recognize that and I need to slow down. And that means not only speaking out loud, but it means the thoughts in my head speaking while someone else is speaking, right? I need to be slow to speak, and I need to be quick to listen and learn to be an active listener. There's tension there. I don't like it, but the road to maturity is full of it, right? And I have the temptation to go back and just think about what I want to think about because what I want to say is more important anyways. I'm the pastor. Everything I say is super important. And I can, I can get into that train of thinking. I can get into that train of thinking where I'm just thinking of the response instead of being present, listening, but that's selfish. But the road to maturity is one that is selfless. So James talks about being an active listener, being slow to speak, being quick to listen. Another part of self-deception and selfishness that James deal with is angry speech. 
because we're angry. And, and I think that, that we're often angry when we're not listening to someone and we're not having a, a cordial dialogue, one that is being patient, one that's being kind, one that's driven by love and concern and care for the individual. And so we'll often be angry with our speech when we're what? When we're selfish. Because really when we're angry in our speech, we're not really trying to hear what the other person has to say. We're trying to let the other person know we're really angry about this. And we want them to feel angry, whether it's because we want to intimidate them, whether because we want to uh, get our way, whether it's because we think that they're wrong and we're right, and so we will get angry towards them, thinking that our anger is going to cause them to change, our anger is going to cause them to grow, and that's not a healthy motivating factor at all. Matter of fact, James says that the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Amen, somebody? James said the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. So you can get angry, but it's not going to produce righteousness in someone else. Because your anger is not a healthy motivating factor to try to get someone to change. He said, actually, you need to just listen, be slow to speak. He said, stop thinking about you, stop making it about you. Why don't you just live in this tension? And why don't you allow this tension to work maturity in you so you can actually be present, listen, and seek wisdom and direction from God because he's the source. Amen? See how powerful Scripture is when we look at it in context? Another thing that James deals with is trying to justify our anger. He talks about that we're deceiving ourselves. He said we're justifying because we'll look in the mirror and we'll get a glimpse of who we really are and we don't like what we see. And so we turn around and we want to forget about it. That's the only time you would want to forget what you look like because if you feel like you're looking good, you're going to remember. Oh yeah, matter of fact, every time like you, you even be walking by like, like, like a, 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 a window or something that you can catch like just a hint of your reflection, like 25% and you'll be like... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's what's up. You don't forget those things. You don't forget those things at all. But when you look in the mirror and you're like, yeah, I need to forget this. <laughs> it's because there's something there you don't like, right? That's the only time you would ever want to forget. And it's the same thing with our own selfishness is that we don't want to deal with the things that God brings up, the things that we're confronted with. You'll come here to church and you'll hear me speak strongly on a particular topic or the Holy Spirit will really nail you on something and you'll feel like the sermon was just for you. I promise you the sermon was not just for you. There's hundreds of other people that the sermon was for as well, but God wanted to speak to you, not just the sermon. Amen? And so the more important thing is that you listen to God and not just Pastor Derek, right? And when you listen to him, that's you saying, God, I want what you want, and I want to remember this, not just hear this message, get convicted, feel like I need to change, feel like I want to do something different, and walk out completely the same, because you're just fooling yourself. You're fooling yourself. You're not fooling God. You're not fooling me. You're just fooling yourself. Because there's something God is confronting you with that you need to deal with, and if you keep forgetting about it, and then every time you come to church, you keep hearing the same message over and over again, or God will uh, sporadically hit you randomly with that same message, don't you think that He wants you to not just be a hearer of the Word, but He wants you to actually do what He's saying? Amen? But it's selfishness that drives us forgetting because we're more concerned about having things our way than we are God's way. But the road to maturity is one that is self 
less. And we need to focus on knowing and doing, not just learning it and hearing it, but actually doing it. And then he caps it off with one final thought about controlling our mouths. Because remember, Jesus said that a tree is going to be known by its fruit. And he said that out of our heart is going to come that fruit. Out of our mouth is going to come that fruit. We see that the things that we speak are really a result of what's in our heart and what we've allowed in our heart. And we see that James says, listen, we need to be able to control our tongue. Verse 26, if anybody thinks he's religious, if they think they're spiritual, and he doesn't, he doesn't learn how to, how to bridle his tongue, then he's self-deceived. He's one of these people I just talked about that hears the word but not really doing it. And one of these people that knows a lot and could probably quote all the scriptures on the power of the tongue but doesn't do a very good job of controlling it themselves. He said they're self-deceived because they think that they're the person who is uh, uh, the, the poster child for spiritual wisdom and maturity, but they're speaking negativity. They're gossiping. They're angry. They're selfish. They're not listening to other people. He said, that's, that's not maturity at all. That's very selfish. That comes from a selfish heart. He said, actually, they'll be slow to speak. They'll bridle that tongue, and they'll recognize. It doesn't mean you're always perfect at it, but it means that you're bridling it, and you're going, oh, wow, I'm recognizing this, and I recognize the need to change. That's tension. That's uncomfortable. That takes trust in God, because, God, I need help with this, because I can't do this on my own. And i got to trust. But at the same time, it's me putting myself in that humble position to allow God to work in my heart. You see, the core of this passage is wrapped up in verse 27, where he said, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. What does that mean? Does that mean that all of us need to leave today and go visit an orphan or a widow? No, that's not what that means. The heart behind those acts is one that is selfless. And that's really what he's saying. He's saying, listen, he said, you want to know what true religion is? He just ties it to this one example. He said, it's selfless living. It's one that's more concerned about someone else than is concerned about themselves. It's one that is actually wanting to like go and visit orphans and widows and make sure they're okay, make sure they're taking care of those that are afflicted, those that are in dire circumstances. And when you're not in that circumstance and someone else is, that you actually extend your hand of grace and love towards them to love on them and care for them and help them. Selflessness is the true fruit of a mature believer. And hear me real quick. Maturity is not tenure. It is not knowledge. It is serving, it is trusting, even through trials. And it's finding peace in Jesus. Let's say that again. Maturity is not tenure. Too often we equate maturity with tenure. Just because you've been sucking air for a long time doesn't mean that you're a mature person, right? Maturity is not tenure. It's not knowledge. A lot of times we think maturity is how smart I am how much I know, how impressive I can be with my speech, how many scriptures I can quote. That, that's not maturity either. Maturity is serving, it's trusting even through trials and finding joy and peace in Jesus. So here's the application this morning. The road to maturity 
it's one that's full of tension. It's one that's full of trials. It's one that will actually help us grow if we trust in God and if we seek wisdom from God. When we grow in maturity, that trust should be driving our heart towards Jesus and our lives will produce this selfless attitude that is patient, that's full of serving other people. This chapter, I think it really drives home the message of loving God, loving people, and serving the world. I think we've heard that once or twice here at Word of Grace. Remember, the road to maturity is full of tension. The road to maturity trusts. The road to maturity produces a selfless heart in us to serve others. So I want to ask you this question this morning. Do you consider yourself a mature believer? Why or why not? Do you consider yourself maturing? Are you growing? Are you actively moving on that road to maturity? You see, just like the statement that I said earlier, you cannot be spiritually mature and emotionally immature. So have we embraced the tension? Have we counted it all joy, or do we avoid it? Do we medicate it? Do we medicate the tension instead of facing it? Perhaps this is your opportunity to ask God for wisdom. Perhaps today was the reminder to say, God, I need wisdom from you because guess what? He said, I've got plenty of it. I'm the source, and all you've got to do is ask and trust. See, we need to be patient in the trial that we're facing. We need to stop allowing our emotions to run our lives, amen? I don't know about you, but I'm sick of my emotions trying to dictate whether or not I'm going to have a good day or not because something may come against me, because something may be challenging in my life. I know that God wants us free from that stuff, amen? The road to maturity embraces tension, and it faces temptation. And it asks God for wisdom so trust can grow and so fruit of serving others can be shown. Don't deceive yourself because you've been in church and you know all this, okay? Don't deceive yourself and say, I've heard this before. I know all of this. You need to check your heart if that's your attitude. Don't check out on me just because these are familiar scriptures to you perhaps. But instead of you just being someone who hears it and knows it, are you taking the action steps and doing it? I think the biggest action step for every one of us in this room is this, to embrace the trial and the tension we're facing by asking God for wisdom, by being patient, by not trying to control our situation by our anger or by hurting others with our words or giving in to temptation, but by being doers of the word. Doers that say, yes, God, I'm going to embrace the tension. I'm going to grow. That means that I'm going to think and do things differently because you have given me the wisdom to lead and grow into maturity. Let's pray. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit WOGCC.com.